Hey, your dudes, and sew your name patch on your jacket. It's time for the 27 Club, the world's only podcast about the group so exclusive you have to die to get in. Hosted by It's Pete. And PJ. And you know what? I am dying to get in. You Yes, it's... Uh, should we amend this to say so exclusive you have to literally die to get in, as kids would say these days, because if you figuratively are dying to get in, you don't make it in. That's true. That's yeah, right. Yeah, you know, I had not... You put a different emphasis on it this time, and that's what made me yeah. think, oh, man, you're just dying yeah. to get in. And I don't know if you intended that... Uh, not a pun, really, but a play on words. Yeah, I, but, I didn't, uh, but I love it. And it really explains, actually, the Harry Styles conundrum, which was he... He said many times in many an interview uh, that he he was he felt like he was dying to get in, and the interviewer said, "Hold on, are you talking about like killing yourself or like wanting to die to yeah. get into this Twenty Seven Club?" And he said, "Oh, no, 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 no! I love my life. I, I, I I'm a very happy, content person. I want to stay alive. Just figuratively, I'm dying to get in." Right. And they said, oh, I get it, Harry. Okay. And then, you know, headline proclaims, Harry Styles wants to be a member of 27 Club, comma, won't do what it takes. So, (laughs) you know. Is actually a little coward. (laughs) So, you know, poor poor unfortunate Harry Styles never died at the age of 27. What a guy. Now he's 28 and it's too late. That's right. 28 too late. 26 too Dicks, two dicks. Uh, yeah, two dicks. Um, I was gonna say pick up sticks, but it really doesn't. <laughs> um, is there a member of Sticks that's in the Twenty Six Club? Because we could really figure that assume. out. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm still hoping for Post Malone. I'm calling it. You think? I think he's yeah. gonna do it. He's twenty six. He seems now, like the still, right. Seems like the right guy or the right time, or the right type of guy. That's what I'm trying to say. My he bad. will turn twenty seven. July fourth night or July fourth of this year, it's so I've got like a whole days, year to be Malone right. Countdown. Yeah. Oh, oh, July fourth next year. No, no, no. This year, he is twenty six now, but after he turns twenty seven, I still have a year. Oh, I get it. He's yeah. twenty six now. My bad. My bad. Yeah, 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 I thought yeah, you meant yeah. he was going to turn twenty eight in three weeks, and I was oh very no. confused by whatever your mental math was. Oh no no no! I've got a year and some change for him to. There you well, go. I guess. I need the change to happen first, and right. then I've got a whole year where he can right. die and I'll right. be right. And we're actually uh, taking bets. If you head over to beachboysboys.com. Um, we have an online, we're an online yeah. bookie. Uh, not, it's not legal technically, but like you just mail us your, or you email us the bet. You can PayPal PJ. Um, yeah. His account's secure now. It, um, well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His account's very secure. Uh, you can PayPal PJ your bet, and then we'll, you know, we'll distribute and, and obviously pay out anything that happens if, uh, you know, depending on which which way you bet. Um, and betting on someone living or dying is really just a great way, I think, to like to to go through life. It's it's yeah. fun, you know. Yeah. It's a good thing. Uh, that's it's why I nice. pick a list of five people every year who I think are gonna die, and I try to make sure that happens. Yeah. Especially, yeah, especially someone in the prime of their lives. Like, it's not even, like, which aged celebrity who you didn't even know was still alive might die next year, you know, if they're 95 years old or something. But just really someone in the prime of their life where it would just be a, a, you know, sad to to everybody Um, to get cut down. You know, the people on my list this year, 
Norm okay, MacDonald, sure. Meatloaf, sure. Louis Anderson, Bob and Saget, Taylor Hawkins, and surprisingly, this one hasn't happened yet, but I'm hoping and maybe plotting, but uh, Natalie Portman. <laughs> She's going down this year. Just one completely young person. I guarantee it. Yeah. 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 All right. So Natalie, guess, watch like, out. Bob, Bob Saget wasn't super old, but. Neither was Taylor Hawkins. He was only 50. That's your host, Natalie Portman, though. I want to say, whoa, it is pouring rain. Holy shit. Um, it looks she's... like in a movie when they just spray the hose down outside right now. I bet she's 38. Right I'm going to guess she's near 50. Oh, she is 40. She's 40. Hey, I won that. Yeah. You bastard. I kind of feel like she was young in um, Star Wars. So that's what I was going off, because I was like 2004 or whatever when those She Star was like Wars 16, I think. I thought she was older than that. I was going to say she was like 20 in that, and it's been about 20 years since then. It's been but you're right. If she's only 40 now. Four years. She would have been born in 1988. Yeah. So she would have been 16 when Star Wars came out because it was filmed in 99. It's been 23 years wait, since wait. then. Hmm? 22. Minus. Plus 18. 82, not 88. Yeah, I didn't. My sister was born in 88, and she's not close to 40, so that's I what also made me realize my sister, math was yeah. really wrong. <laughs> I, I, too, have a sister born in 1988, and yeah, uh, yeah. I was just going with the rhetoric that yeah. she was 40. So, so but 1982, she would have been 20, or she would have been 19, or 17, 18. 82. She would have been 17 when the first movie came out. Yeah, and probably 16 when the were the filming it, though. by the time the last movie came out. Okay, sure. And then by the time the last movie came out, she would have been 23. Right. Actually younger than I thought. I'm surprised she was like actually a teenager. Now, did you know that Kira Knightley, who looks like Natalie Portman, was 17 no. when Pirates of the Caribbean was filmed and, <laughs> I don't and released? That, That's a real fact. Are you fucking kidding me? No, not at all. She was 17 during the filming I know, of that movie. Like Those are both movies that I mostly watched when I was a kid, so they seemed like they were 35 years old to me, but I still... I don't... That's crazy. You can look it up. The facts are all right in front of you on Google there, friend. She was born in 1985. That is truly crazy. Wait, when did Pirates of the Caribbean come out? Like 2003? Yep. Damn. Uh-oh. Kira Knightley admits Pirates of the Caribbean was not what? Was not what? A dream role? What? <laughs> oh. Oh, no. <laughs> what a thing for her to admit. Holy shit. My God, <laughs> when you think of pirate movies, this is the greatest article I've ever seen. When you think of pirate movies, PJ, mm-hmm. Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean franchise is often what comes to mind because it's often. the only pirate franchise, except uh, for like the Errol Flynn ones from the 20s. Peter Pan, of course. Oh, okay, there you go. Uh, with storylines that are filled with adventure, laughter, and romance, it was almost every kid's dream to helm the Black Pearl. Yeah, but not a kid who was alive before the movies came out. That yeah. doesn't make any sense. Well, they saw the ride at Disneyland, which we are yeah. more than familiar with, and right. uh, they yeah, dreamed. and especially yeah, especially a woman, <laughs> especially a young woman, like let's say like fourteen, fifteen years old, yeah, riding through that ride, thinking if they made a movie of this someday, would I want to be in it? And seeing that the only woman in it was being actively raped animatronically, then sure, why not? Yeah, why not be excited about that movie? Hey, that sounds like a great it's time. not the only woman in that ride. There's a lot of different women in that ride who are being sexually true. assaulted. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 
or or uh very let's say matronly looking women holding like six steins of beer yeah those are your two your two uh female My favorite roles things. in the parts of the caribbean ride so yeah i i've uh, Peter, I have to admit, I've been too scared to go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Uh, it's ever. the scariest one. I know. We and we've we've been to Disneyland many times. We would go there for lunch every day. Everybody knows this. It's fact. Yeah. Um. However, I looked up the original ride to see like, like the one that was built back in the '60s, to see yeah. like why did they make a movie about this, and yeah. um, it seemed like a really bad ride. It's not great. Yeah. It's really not great. It's just and dark it's, and wet and there are robots. Yeah, it's it's a pretty boring ride. I guess I get that it could kind of I mean again, there's not a lot of like pirate stuff out there. So I guess I could get why it would be like really intriguing to some kids. But it's a weird one that they would make a whole movie out of. Yeah. It, it's weird. So. It's some weird IP that they were like we can do more with this. But they've done that for a lot of those rides, so I don't know, man. Uh, like the Haunted Mansion, they made a ride or a movie out of. Huckleberry but, Finn, they made a movie out of. That was originally they they made a book about that one after it came. Oh, out. Oh, what think. the fuck? Yeah, it's crazy. The uh, Big Thunder Railroad, you know, they made it. They based the Prospector Pete guy in Toy Story two off of Big Thunder Railroad. Oh, so they really, it, yeah, they go all out. It's good know. to know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so. This ties it all together, by the way. So we're, we're talking about Kira Knightley's dream role not being the wench. Um, <laughs> Kira Knightley, I forgot this, also, also in, in Phantom Star Menace. Yep. She was only 14 during the Phantom Menace, which is even crazier that, like, I mean, I guess 17 and 14 aren't that far apart, but that, because she played the, you know, lookalike right. person for Padme. Yeah. And so, yeah, but, like, I feel like a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old would be... Well, she was in all that makeup and shit, though. So, like, yeah. it's funny. I always thought it was funny that she got her start acting in that yeah. because she looked so much like Natalie Portman. But then, literally, she just wears white makeup the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Pirates of the Caribbean came out in 2003, so she would have been 17 to 18, like, during filming and release. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Because, like, they, you know, they had a little screenshot of her in that movie, and I would never, for my life, guess that it's a 17-year-old. Yeah. You think she's she looks, really hot? Even Is to my eyes now, she looks, no, just she looks like she could be my age. Like, she looks like she could be 27. Well, and easily. you think that 17-year-old Kira Knightley's really hot is what you told me off air, actually, so. All right, stop it. <laughs> um, anyway, however, the actor did not originally think she wanted to play the daughter of a governor-turned-pirate. Oh. Nightly spoke with podcast Chanel Connects. What is that podcast? Oh, my favorite podcast. Where she admitted that Elizabeth Swan, alongside of her other big blockbuster roles, was not what she originally sought out when wanting to become an actor. Wow, that's crazy. It's truly wild that she didn't originally seek that out when she was becoming an actor. That is crazy. See, I know she sought out, I want to be a bit part in Star Wars. I know that (laughs) much. Yeah. Hopefully they revamp the the franchise, and then um, I definitely don't want to be a pirate. Yeah, apparently Pirate Six is going to be female centered, but won't have Kira Knightley in it. Margot Robbie is supposed to be. The is main it Robbie? I thought it was. I always Robbie. say it that way because I think I go Margot, and so then I want to go Robbie. Ah, uh, 
Yeah. Roe um, B. Wade. Whereas Johnny Depp is currently walking a tightrope in regarding to reprising his role in the Pirates franchise. Is he? What's happening with him? Apparently. I don't know. I haven't heard yeah. anything about him in a while. Yeah. Uh. You know what's really funny about that is Shelby this week has been paying attention to the trial, as I think every person in the world's significant other has been. Yep. Not to be all, you know, men do this and women do that, but, you know. Um, the Whatever day it was this week where there was supposed to be a decision, it was like, oh, so exciting. They're going to make a decision, apparently, in like two hours. All this. Very excited. I didn't hear again about it. So a couple days later, we were like sitting around and I said, oh, hey, whatever happened with that? And she's like, oh, well, they decided this for this decision. And then on this other decision, they went like they ruled in like Amber Heard's favor. And I said, oh, cool what does any of that mean? Like who won what or like what happens now? And she's like, I don't know. I don't really know what the trial was about. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, okay. Yeah, me neither. But it's fun to watch, I guess. I so it's good to know. Pretty great. It, it's OJ all over again, but <laughs> nobody had to doubt. People knew what that was about. <laughs> Did people know what that was about? Anyone, I still don't know what that's about. I don't think anyone had any doubts. Yeah. yeah. I thought it I was about know, a OJ, football thing. He's just so, yeah, he's so He tried cool. to get I his love, memorabilia back. That's he's really I'm... fun on Twitter, you know, just him hanging out. I don't understand the scandal with him where he was like, there was a, I think, kind of scandal, or at least he was getting like memed on a Twitter or TikTok or something recently. Of course. Because there was some video posted of like, a bunch of like 20 something women hanging out in his house with him and partying. What a nerd. Yeah. But it was like, a like being passed around, like people were surprised or bothered or something. And I'm like, I don't know what you're expecting from fucking OJ Simpson. Like, why is he not partying with a bunch of like, you know, 20 year old bimbos for lack of a better term? Uh, well, that's going in. Oh, Peter, people are going to be so Sorry, mad at my you. sexism is rearing its head, yeah. Um, you know, that is a good point because maybe they're it's exactly like, the behavior I expected. He golfs yeah. all day and then just does that all night. I yeah. don't understand. He's a, he's a rich person. Um, yeah. my, my thought is those ladies better watch out. Yeah, well. He's going to steal their memorabilia. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Back from him. Um, well, PJ... Uh, uh, Welcome to the episode. Do we, let's, you know what? Let's not even start talking about music yet. Let's go ahead and do a segment we love to, uh, we love to do. We like, look, are there any segments we don't like to do? I don't know. This is one of our favorites though. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about our Roadhouse Brews. Oh, it's like we're in the Roadhouse right now. Do you think they ever played the song Roadhouse Blues in the movie Roadhouse? I don't think they did. No, and they fucked up. That's why that movie. That's why everyone hates that movie. Though. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the r- moment they realized that it sucked. My my. Uh, the reason yeah. I realized it sucked is because Jeff Healy is in it, and you know my thoughts on blind people. I think they're all faking. That's true. Well, PJ, uh, today our Roadhouse Brews. I am drinking a. I'm taking a page out of your book. I'm drinking a hazy IPA Ooh. called Profuse Juice. That's a uh, good one. Brewed, okay, brewed by Ten Barrel Brewing Company. I've not had it before, but it is good. And where is Ten Barrel Brewing Company based out of? Based out of Bend, Oregon, which yeah. is up in the mountains, not even close to the ocean, but this is ocean-themed, 
It's got oceans on the uh, like ocean waves on the label, and one percent of the proceeds go to the Surfrider Foundation. So I have no idea why they like what, why. But there you go. And one percent, I think they could do a little better. Yeah, one percent is not much. No, not much, my friend. Yeah, they better be huh. selling a lot of that beer for one percent to add up to anything significant. Yeah. Oh, here's ten dollars this week, surfers. Those fuckers. Um, you can pick up one piece of plastic off the off the beach for that amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am drinking a uh, Diet Pepsi. Um, nice. It is the classic Diet Pepsi taste, which you know it means it's got aspartame in it. You oh, know it does. Um, oh, yeah. Because when they changed it from having aspartame to make it not as bad for you, um, everybody complained about it. And then they said, fine. But it's going to have aspartame in it. And then everybody's like, we'll handle it. And uh, yeah. so now it's got aspartame in it, and they call it that classic Diet Pepsi taste. People said, look, we already know that it's killing. It's like if you're giving us a cigarette with, like, slightly less bad ingredients. We don't care because it's still going to kill us. You it say that, but then American spirits exist, and they're very popular. <laughs> you want to know a joke that I thought was incredible and I think you'll appreciate, but I it either just did not get the reaction I wanted because maybe it was perceived as being mean or it did not, uh, it went over people's heads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I live now in foggy old Portland town. Uh, yes. This doesn't actually even need to be on the show necessarily, but I live in foggy old Portland town. And just like the town in Montana that I used to live in before I lived in Anaheim, uh, it's very much a lots of hipsters smoking town. Mm-hmm. A uh, lot of, you know, 20 to 30-somethings in who look like, yeah, anyway, um, who smoke cigarettes. And so when our friend Jake was up here, I was hanging out with him, and we met up with his sister who lives here. And she's extremely, you know, just Portland hipster and everything that goes along with that. Yeah. And he was, like, teasing her, chiding her, whatever, because she, like, apparently is smoking cigarettes, and it's a, you know, thing that he was like, come on, you don't have to do that. And they were just talking about it. I didn't see the cigarettes, and I said, oh, what do you smoke? Or, uh, no, I didn't even say what do you smoke. I said, which color of American spirits do you smoke? <laughs> and she said, oh, green or something, and I was like, okay. And But no one out like Jake, nor her, seemed to get that I was, like, immediately just what color American Spirits, not what brand. Yeah. Because I was like, it's American Spirits. It's American Spirits. He's got to be like American Spirits. like a 25-year-old yeah. in Portland who smokes. It's American Spirits. Yeah. That's I think that's option. a good joke, Pete. I thought it was very funny, and it either was perceived as being mean or <laughs> they just didn't understand what I was doing. So You know, back in the day, a lot of your jokes just got perceived as being mean. <laughs> I think even now, yeah. Oh, see, where whereas I'm like, oh no, Pete, he's just funny, and then people yeah, are like, hilarious. I don't know, I don't know if Peter yeah. likes me, and I'm like, no, he does. I just uh, I like everybody. I don't true. actually. I I kind of hate everybody, but that's not neither here nor there. You hate everybody but your dog and your wife. We know. <laughs> I like hanging out with dogs because they aren't people, PJ. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Nice, but dogs uh, have to be owned by people. That's the only nice downside. Of, uh, Roadhouse Brews. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, are you the type of person who prefers... So this occurred to me the other day. Mm -hmm. I was watching Seinfeld. Aha. Uh -huh. Classic American sitcom, <laughs> Seinfeld. Classic. Um, and they were having a party, and yes. Jerry got regular Coke and Diet Pepsi, 
And I was, first of all, huh. I was surprised because it feels like they should have just done a, they would have had a deal with whatever company yeah. where they only have like Coke or Pepsi in the show. But instead it was, he very specifically put a thing of regular Coke and then a thing of Diet Pepsi. And then it made me wonder, I'm not a soda drinker. Right. I was like, is that a thing where people prefer one of the diet ones and then one of the regular ones, but it's different? I'm sure it is. regular Coke and Diet Coke taste pretty different. So I could see you preferring, yeah. you know. So I was just curious if you drank regular Pepsi or Coke, if you preferred you know, a I, different one over Diet Pepsi, you know. I don't drink regular soda because it uh, makes my teeth feel gross. Um, mm. And that is the sole <laughs> reason why I don't drink it. Um, but Coke and Diet Coke, I think, are both foul. I think mm. they are, um, they taste like sewage water, in my opinion. Um, whereas, like, Pepsi I can stomach, like regular Pepsi. I think it tastes fine. I don't drink it because of the tea thing. But Diet Pepsi is the best soda. And um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. There's also, nice. see, what I thought you were going to bring up is there is a, a Seinfeld episode pretty early on where uh, they're talking about how they need to bring wine to this party. Mm. And then... Uh, not Jerry. George is like, oh, what do I have to bring wine? I don't drink wine. He's like, what if I just get a two liter of Pepsi? And then Jerry's like, you want to walk from that party and slam a jug of Pepsi down on the table? He's like, yeah, what's the wrong with that? Yeah. And I thought to myself, That's really funny. that would be very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it is kind of funny. We have, uh, like, I don't think about it because I am such a drinker and I've never really known people who don't drink. But I had a good friend in foggy old San Francisco town. And then we have a brother-in-law up here who like, who don't drink. And so it's like my go-to always for any get together is like, oh, we got to have beer for everybody or wine or whatever. And like here, and actually Shelby's, one of Shelby's sisters doesn't really drink either. And so it's like very, um, yeah, it's like very weird to me that the go-to isn't just, we have to have alcohol for everybody. It's like, we should have a drink that's not that. And so... It's taking the joke seriously, but I'm like, they're actually, it's not a bad idea because if you're right? someone who doesn't drink and you go to a party and it's just like either water or a bunch of alcohol, then you might be stoked that someone brought soda pop. I know. I would be. Yeah. Well, yeah. I drink, so I'm going to be drinking beer. But if I was, yeah. I don't know, being the designated driver, which is yeah, not yeah, a thing exactly. I believe in, I think you can drive drunk all day long. And well, you, yeah, happen. you live in Colorado, so there's no such thing as drunk driving. No, the only thing that's bad that's going to happen is you just slam to a mountain, I guess. But yeah. uh, I, I don't see other cars up here on the mountain. But um, you know, I'd be psyched if somebody slammed a jug of Diet Pepsi down on the table, and they were like, "Have at it." Yep. I would indeed have at it. Yeah, you would. Plus, most Hell people yeah. like it for mixers. If you're doing like a not Diet Pepsi because that's weird, but like. Think yeah. of Coke. I don't know. Throw Rum some Coke, baby. Classic yeah. drink. Very classic. Well, you want to talk about Big Star Pete? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> now that that segment's over, goddamn. Uh, yeah. So we, if you thought, look, if you were one of those people who the last three episodes has thought Badfinger, never heard of them, don't really care about them, but like, all right, we'll get yeah. into a couple lesser known people. That's fine. We can't just talk about Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain for. 40 episodes if you were that person prepare to be disappointed yeah have we got an episode for you yeah if you thought badfinger were under the radar and pete ham especially then welcome to the episode where we talk about chris bell of big star yeah and if you have heard either of those names before 
you are either a pretty big music fan or you read Pitchfork religiously in the 2010s, I think, are the two that, options yeah. there. Cause, Which yeah, one do you Star, fall into, Beep? Yeah, take a guess. Both. Uh, big Star, well, I guess we're going to kind of go a little bit reverse here because we're going to start with their cultural impact just because I guess I think it's maybe just worth kind of pointing out why why we're talking about Big Star um, as opposed to, look, the, the 27 club list, once you get past those top you know five or six names, is very long. There's a lot of people on there, and there's a lot of people who are like arguably famous. Yeah. And, you know, Badfinger flirt with that. There's like, I think there's a guy who is in the band The Minutemen, which I like know is a big punk band, but I'm just not that into punk. So to me, it's not worth right. talking well, there's, about. There's also somebody from uh, The Stooges. Um, yeah, there's a couple there. rappers from like, from later on that it's like, I'm sure those are big people in certain worlds. But it just, you know, it, it it it's a reflection, I suppose, of where I and PJ, to some degree, come from musically that who we consider important to talk about. Hey, so, hey, 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 And obviously, don't, don't throw me under the bus Okay, there. okay, for me. You sure. picked all the people. And generally, I get, like, that's, ju- that's definitely just going to lean classic rock. And obviously not that I'm opposed to talking about someone outside of that world if I feel like they're what i guess chris bell is the the one person i think in here that that you can make an argument has no significance to like music at large a little bit you yeah know what i mean but here's my like thing. pig pen and even pete ham i think if you're just a general music fan there's a reason to maybe care right but like this is this is the one pick of the show i think where it's like this it's, is just purely my own interest being it is strange toward classic rock however so picking him out the, the, like, the guy from the Stooges, he was a bassist. We're not going to fucking talk about him, you know? No. Um, and then a lot of these other people are like, oh, they were one of the drifters, you know? It's not right, like... Right, right. The, the people we've talked about are front men, basically. True. Front men and women. We lean that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, with some of, like, the hip-hop artists and stuff, it's like, I... I, I like to think I'm decently well-versed in hip-hop, even from the 80s and 90s. And, like, if I'm not recognizing your name or the associated acts, then I feel like it's just not, yeah. you know, I can, I like, those people might be important and they might be worth talking about, but just in terms of what is of general interest, uh, Chris Bell seemed like the very smallest name we could kind of get to. So, so like I was saying, so this is very much skewed off my own experience because I'm really only aware of Big Star because they had this huge resurgence in the 2010s when we were both in high school okay. and when... All of my friends, at least, were like learning that you could read Pitchfork to be the cool kid in terms of music and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they became a very cool band to get into during that time. Um, so Pitchfork's Pitchfork, excuse me, Pitchfork, <laughs> uh, Pitchfart more like, yeah. started writing about them Fucking in 2009 roasted. when they, like, some of their albums were reissued. Mm-hmm. And then in 2010, um a couple of the band members die i think there's one living band member at this point so the two two other band members that weren't chris bell obviously uh died in 2010 so then it they kind of they really got this big resurgence because a ton of artists who liked them and were influenced by them and stuff started doing like cover versions and did like a tribute show and then there was a documentary about them that came out a couple years later and so 
there was kind of this whole uh, a new attention brought to the group around that time. So they were, even though like during their time, they were very much underground. They apparently had already been really well known, like during interviews in the 80s and 90s, um, lots and lots of bands would mention them as influences, like R.E.M. really famously mm-hmm. cited them a lot as a major influence on them. Uh, and the replacements, apparently even there was this Paul Stanley, uh, from kiss. There was a Paul Stanley interview where he talks about them and the raspberries as being like a major influence on kiss. That's really uh, funny, which is yeah, pretty wild. So they were like, they were kind of one of the original cult bands, I guess is what I'm trying to mm-hmm. say, you know, where a lot of these famous artists liked them and they were kind of known around as this band yeah. you could get into if you're a cool guy. But we've, we've also talked about this a few times on the show, but um, records that we find all the time, crate digging, this album that we're talking about today, yeah. I have seen a million times. Oh, interesting. I wonder if a lot of that, well, we'll get to the, the releases during their lifetime. Mm. I would guess that's because it became so huge and was re-released a lot and then, yeah. you know, it probably just sold like gangbusters and yeah makes sense so that's pretty interesting so yeah so i guess i'm just trying to say like the boys the big star boys uh seemed like one of the most necessary of the you know little known or unknown members of the 27 club but that's really just you know kind of my my take reading through the 27 club list so let's uh let's get into chris bell of big star I would love to. He was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1951. And we have officially crossed over a generational line in this podcast where when we were talking about Badfinger, they were younger than the Beatles, but like they got their break in London in like 1966. So really only like two or three years after like the Beatles and the Stones and the Who were breaking out in London. Right. And so, you know, they were younger. Like, Pete Ham died at 27 in 1975. And I feel like Paul was 27, like, when the Beatles broke up or so, right? Like, 26 or Yeah, 26 so. or so. So they're younger, but they're basically in the same world. Uh, right. Like, and in the same music scene. But Chris Bell, being born in 1951, means he started, like, his first albums that he bought were the first Beatles and Stones and Who records. Yeah. When he was a, a 12 and 13-year-old. So... Now we're, from here on out, we're into, yeah, musicians who grow up listening to the bands that we talked about originally, which is kind of interesting to note, especially because this first Big Star album comes out in 1972, only two years after the Badfinger debut. Right. But is actively a different generation of people. Yeah, very, very very different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just a, a kind of a crazy, crazy thing to me that, I guess I just didn't realize Big Star were so young when they started, basically. They were like 20 years old when their first record came out. So It's really bizarre um, to think of things like that where, you know, like the the music that the Beatles were coming out with in like 68, 69, 70, and then the fact that Led Zeppelin also formed in 1968 and released an album yeah. in 1969 um, yeah. is bonkers, kind of. Yeah. Like, because there's uh, two generations of music. Yeah. But two generations. And then also, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, all that is to say, or like, as well as, you know, this generational gap, we are also now finally into groups that are 
not inspired by the blue like we're another mm. step removed all these british invasion groups were inspired by the blues musicians now we have groups that are inspired by the british invasion groups not these original blues artists so chris bell saw the beatles on their 1964 us tour they came through memphis and he was already listening to some british invasion stuff before that and so that kind of sealed his influence in this poppy rock and blues oriented sound um, and mm-hmm. this kind of stuck with him for the rest of his life. Uh, okay. So in the next few years, like 1965, 66, he started playing lead guitar in a local group called The Jinx, spelled J-Y-N-X. Ooh. So cool. Yeah, it's Wikipedia says that this is a pun on The Kinks. Is and I'm not it sure now? how. Yeah, I looked at that for a long time and I couldn't tell whether I was an idiot or what, but I was like, I can't figure out how that's a pun on the kinks what it did make me think is how funny would the kinks name be if it was spelled k-y-n-x that would be pretty good (laughs) and there has to be a kinks cover band out there that spelled like that'd be so dope to have a kinks cover band spelled k-y-n-x i love that idea that is pretty great just the idea of cover bands having the same names but spelled differently like the beatles Mm -hmm. but it's spelled like the bug yeah that'd be great that is fun actually yeah i like that so hey Pete, you want to I start a Beatles cover Beatles band? Have a really be... good idea. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. The Bugs. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the same local music scene, which there was, I mean, I think every town in America had a like British invasion influenced music scene at this point. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting to point out in Memphis because at this time also, Memphis was like tied with Detroit as the biggest soul. Uh city in the world yeah and so but there was also this music scene of a bunch of little white kids playing british invasion music Mm -hmm. uh so this is what chris bell was in so he met this guy named alex chilton um who was another singer and guitar player who became the lead singer of the box tops which are i was could not believe were involved in this story because i know the box tops they had like three pretty huge hits from the late 60s that are Say it with me, played on Sirius XM, 60s on 6 all the time. Yeah. Um, So including The Letter is the most famous one that Alex Chilton sang lead on. Okay. Um, Cry Like a Baby, Choo Choo Yeah. Sold Deep. Yeah. And and I think The Letter would probably be their most famous song as well. Crazily, he sang that song when he was only 16 years old. Wow. Which I would never have guessed based on the A common theme of of this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Some people getting their start young. That's let's all part let's see if I've heard this song before. It does not sound familiar. I think it's on maybe the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack. Choo Choo Train is on the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack. Oh, I've heard this song for sure. Yeah, fucking sixteen-year-old. Huh? Wild. I mean, he's doing a whole voice, but still, it doesn't sound like a sixteen-year-old doing a voice. No, not at all. Huh? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So he was with the box tops. Oh for wait, a little bit. you know what? I know this song because Joe Cocker covers it. Yes, he does. Yeah, very famously. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever heard this version actually. Yeah. Nice. The Joe Cocker so, version fucking yeah. rules though. So the box tops, I think, just break up. Like I think he leaves the band and they break up in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and he meets Bell again. 
and asks him if he wants to start a duo a la Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, and my Chris fate. Bell said, ha, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you, do you know Bridge Over Troubled Water? What if we did something like that? What 20-year-old kid doesn't want to remake Bridge Over Troubled Water in 1970? Anyway, also, they're, um, they're British. Oh, no, they're American. They're Memphis. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I was so, thinking, like, Chris, no British folk duo exists that I know of. Yeah. Uh, oh, fuck, what's the one? Also from the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack, they might be American, though. You're going to have to give me a second to look this up, because now I really... Chad and Jeremy. I think Chad and Jeremy are American, but they might be British. It sounds that's very the one British. I, that's the one Simon and Garfunkel knockoff band I can think of off the top of my head. Chad and Jeremy, British. All right. Nice. Nailed it. But not famous. No, not at all. Um, so... Chris said, ha ha, no, I don't want to do that, but why don't you come watch my band play? Uh, our name is Ice Water. <laughs> Another common theme. Terrible name. Yeah. Although, apparently, they also use the name Rock City sometimes, which is a badass name for a band. That, no, that name rules, I think. Not. I think Rock City is a very cool band name. It's, Ice it's Water better sucks. for yeah. sure than <laughs> Ice Water. Yeah. Um. But, but it's, not great. it's still not good, I don't yeah. think. Uh, I will say, you know, for all of our band name ups and downs on this show, Big Star is a pretty dope band name. But Big Star's not anyway. bad, yeah. So Chilton really liked the show. And after it showed them some of the songs he had written recently, and they invited him to join their band, um, which they were did more of a rock, pop, you know, Beatles-esque mm-hmm. kind of sound. So they invited him to join their band instead uh, and this was the origin of Big Star. The rest of the band, so it was Alex Chilton and Chris Bell on guitars and vocals, and then Andy Hummel played bass and Jody Stevens played drums, and this would be their lineup the whole time. So mm-hmm. They named themselves Big Star after a southern grocery store chain, Big Star Markets. <laughs> um, yeah, which is kind of cool. The logo for Big Star Markets, let me send you the photo here in Google. It is the exact logo that's on their first album. Wow. Except they changed it slightly so that they wouldn't get sued. Okay. But, yeah, it was apparently, I found a bunch of photos. It was apparently, um, like, from Missouri all the way down to, like, Florida or Georgia. So it was a pretty big chain. Oh, I cannot look at that. You sent a bogus-ass link here, dog. What? It doesn't even have a .com at the end. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, weird. How I can just Google it separately. Sure. Yeah, just look up Big Star Markets. Um, so it's basically the same thing. It's kind of like a hand-drawn looking star. Yeah. Uh, like it's not an even five-pointed star. And then inside of it, it says Big Star. Um, so for their album cover, they just did a neon star, and then they just had Big in the middle instead of Big Star so that they didn't get sued by Big Star Markets. That makes sense. Yeah. It's a good um, album cover. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And a cool, like, I mean, not that it really mattered because they were not a super famous band, but if they were a famous band, it would be cool to do, like, a logo, like the Rolling Stones, you know, Raspberry Lips and all that. Like, it'd yeah. be a cool band logo, but they don't They do not do that. <clears throat> so they start recording the first Big Star record with some of the songs that they, you know, had both written in the last few years. 
Chilton or Alex and Chris, I should say, because Chilton's a weird ass last name to say over and over again. Alex and Chris uh, want to be Beatles lovers. They want to of do course. a Lennon McCartney thing where they want the whole album to be Chilton slash Bell, you know, written by. Yeah. Um. So they like you know, start with all these songs that they had written and then, you know, try and work together to finish them out. Apparently they didn't work together as much as like each would individually come in and work on something and then leave. And then the next person would come in and add stuff on top of it or whatever. And then, Mm -hmm. so anyway, but they felt good writing together. Like they liked what each other brought. Apparently Chilton was very kind of rough and raw. And then Chris Bell would come in and like make it sound all nice and add some harmonies and stuff and melody to it. And they kind of worked worked well together uh so this is a article or a quote from an article from vice um from jody stevens the drummer about chris bell quote he was a man on a mission and ambitious in both statement and deed i'd go to the studio in the morning and chris had spent the entire night experimenting with guitar sounds and melody lines every song he wrote seemed to relate to some feeling or lifestyle he was living it was really painful stuff but effective in showing us exactly what his subconscious looked like Wow. Um, by the way, deep shit, this man. band having a huge resurgence in the 2010s means that there are a million articles about them, especially because I think Jody Stevens was the last guy alive. Yeah. With a ton of quotes from him, whereas Badfinger has not been, has not had a resurgence ever that I really know of. So right. there was like a, you know, there were not a lot of great articles about Pete Ham and stuff. So we got a little bit better info about Big Star, ironically, because of that. <laughs> so when the, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying. Hmm. Oh, when the album was released, uh, John Fry, who was the guy, so they they signed with John Fry. He had a little indie record label yeah, in Memphis. That guy called, from the Eagles, brother. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, called Ardent Records, and he was the like owner and would produce the albums and do all that. It was a very small company. Uh, so he was credited as the producer, but everyone in the band claims that Chris Bell basically produced the record, even though he'd never produced anything before, mm-hmm. but that he would just show up and like basically taught himself how to produce while they recorded this record and produced the whole thing. So, wow. Uh, Andy, the bass player said, Chris was in charge. I would credit him with recording and producing that LP. Of course, he had a lot of artistic help from Alex, but Chris was the technical brains. He was the only one of us at the time who knew how to record. Interesting. Yeah. So Alex later said, so apparently they were recording on a 16 track recorder, which even for the time was pretty advanced and especially for such a small studio. Um, so Alex said that mostly what John Fry did was like to finalize the album by like taking all their cuts and mixing them down. Cause the 16 track was very much cutting edge at the time. Of course. So he was. did a lot of the final like mixing basically. And that's why he ended up being credited as the producer. But yeah. So just kind of interesting that, that is yeah, interesting. Chris Bell, yeah. Along with, along with writing was a, uh, a, pretty good producer and that'll come up later in his career as well so yeah so do we let's take a quick break and we will come back and go track by track through the big star debut album number one record let's take a break (laughs) hell yeah
And we're back. This is Big Stars, number one record, the India song on K109.9. You know, a little known fact about this song is it's about a country. A country of India? I thought it was about Indianapolis. I, I don't know anything about Indianapolis. I'm a West Coast kind of a guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, number one record was released in April of 1972 on Ardent Records, distributed by Stax Records. Uh, the album distributed failed, by Stax, huh? Is distributed by Stax. Did not the know album that. Failed to chart. Yeah, <laughs> as of course. Did, it as did both singles. The first was "When My Baby's Beside Me," and the second mm. was "Don't Lie to Me." <laughs> and there are good reasons for why, by the way, all of it failed to chart, which we will get into after our track by track. So. Hang on, we'll we'll talk about it. Uh, so let's get it. So every song except the India song was credited to Chilton Bell, and they shared lead vocals. So I'll, I'll tell yeah. you who's singing lead every time. Uh, the India song was the one Just Chilton Andy Hummel Damn. song. Uh, yeah, he wrote and sung the India song. So I was thinking that that was Chilton because he wanted to do that Simon and Garfunkel shit. <laughs> yeah, it sounds yeah. So let's get into the first track, Feel, uh, Chris Bell, singing lead. And as far as I can tell, Chris Bell is the lead guitar player and Alex is the rhythm guitar player. So as far as that goes in terms of solos and all that, so. Yeah, this fucking rules. Yeah, this album really kicks in the door here, man. Like, we just came off one of the better power pop pans of all time, and this is as good as any Badfinger song already. If not better than most. <laughs> I mean, sure, sure. Yeah, th- this is really great. I love the tone is incredible. Like, for it being such a small indie studio and everything, they did an amazing job producing this record. Like, it sounds incredibly good. Yeah, I was thinking after, I don't know, I didn't expect it to sound like this at all, and then when I started listening to it, I was like, oh, man, this yeah. is awesome. So I will say, I don't love Chris Bell's voice. I hate the thing he does there, and it bugs I don't the mind crap it. out of me every time. But I love his kind of screaming voice that yeah. he does Ooh. during the first part. Fucking Cheap Trick-esque guitar. Mm-hmm. It's weird because it's like very power poppy, but also like kind of Zeppelin-y. Yeah, it's it's definitely their own take on power pop. And yeah. like, it's interesting, you know, we just got done with Badfinger, but hearing power pop that is explicitly Beatles influence, but is not necessarily sounding like that through the music. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. I love it's this whole cool. section too with like the horns and the, yeah. like whatever keyboard that is. Yeah, the horns are really great. I'm trying to find... I found at one point who did the horns, and I don't know now. Boom, 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 boom. I'm jealously just trying to figure out whether it's the Stax horn players or not. A phenomenal opening song on an album. Yeah. It definitely is. I don't know. I'm not finding much on the horns. I swear to God I saw it, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. 
let's go ahead and get to the ballad of El Goodo. This is an Alex Chilton lead. Years ago, my heart was set to live. Oh, I've been trying. I really like that clean guitar tone. Yeah, it's. You know how I always fucking hate the second song being a slow song? Yeah. This song is good enough, I don't care. This is a fantastic song. I'm going to agree. It's, like, it's very good. It is, yeah, it is an absolutely gorgeous song here. And it does get kind of mid-tempo here in a minute, but... But it's, yeah, I, I don't care that it's the that it's not another rocker, because it is yeah. maybe the best song on the album. It's me. one of my favorites, for sure. Yeah. And it... It's got that. I'm probably gonna. I'm gonna make a lot of uh, references to Cheap Trick and Led Zeppelin today. Um, sure. But it's like that tangerine thing, where it's like a ballad, but then it also fucking rocks. Yeah. 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 It's got some. It's got some really fantastic drum fills later on. Yeah. Um. And I love like all the melodies in the back or the yeah. harmonies. I mean, the really the, nice. the backing vocals are amazing. Yeah. I think a lot of the backing vocals are Chris Bell double tracking and like triple tracking himself, by the way. I found, I'm not positive, but I found a couple of references to that being true on some of the songs, so. It's such a good song. It really is fantastic. Oh, that bass. Apparently that, yeah. Apparently that chorus line, the ain't no one gonna turn me around, yes. was a, like, 60s um, civil rights slogan that was being used a lot in Memphis, and interesting, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about them repurposing it for whatever they mean by this song, but... Yeah. Maybe they had good intentions. I Let's say that. And then the little bridge here is very nice. Yeah, I like. I feel like a lesser band would have done like the kind of phased guitar thing. Yeah. And made it all like dreamy and swirly, but it works a so lot too. better with just a clean sound here. I also like that they're not using a twelve-string, but they made an electric kind of sound like a twelve-string. Yeah, it's so That's ringy. That's pretty great. Like they yeah. they nailed the ringy guitar tone. Yeah. All right, I'm going to skip forward. In the street. This is a Chris Bell. They basically go back and forth the whole time. Bell Chilton, Bell yeah. Chilton, Bell Chilton. A song I did not know was originally by Big Star. Oh, what what version do you know? Uh, the Cheap Trick version that they play at the beginning of that 70s show. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I did not. I haven't seen that 70s show for a long time. I never knew. Oh, yes. This was the theme for every season nice. of it. I think the first season it had all the cast singing it, and then they got gotcha. Cheap Trick to do a version of it. Nice. Okay. Actually, I might be wrong. I think maybe, maybe Cheap Trick already had a version of it. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. No, I'm I'm right. They did it for the yeah. show. 
You would think they would just use the Big Star version. You would think, but maybe they were like, does that band even exist anymore? Who knows? We'll just yeah. get Cheap Trick to do it. It's fair. <laughs> Poor guys. Uh, I think this song is very good, but not yeah. not as good as Feel if we're talking, you know, yeah, up tempo rockers here. So, also it's, the it's Cheap Trick version solid. is very good, so it oh, makes yeah. me like, yeah, gotcha. So we get a little cowbell. Like it's very, it's interesting where we were talking about how Badfinger sounded ahead of their time. Sometimes yeah. this is well, this this actually kind of straddles the line because some songs sound a little bit '60s to me, but then stuff like this very much sounds like it could be more late '70s almost. Yeah, in ways so. It's just kind of interesting where like this was an era when music was changing and growing so quickly. Yeah. But it's making me realize some stuff like Power Pop stayed really the same from like 1970 to 1985. Yeah. Like you could be a new Power Pop band and like doing almost the exact same stuff in yeah. the early 80s. But. I mean, and I think it's probably just the perception we have of like generations, but it is mm-hmm. it is crazy that it is, yeah, largely unchanged. Yeah. All right. 13. 13. Uh, so this is, I think, one of their most famous songs. This is the only one I knew off this from Big Star before I started, before we did this show. Um, this is an Alex Chilton sung song. Although I think it's written by Chris Bell, or at least a lot of the lyrics are credited to Chris Bell, so, hmm. but whatever. I mean, he was the lead singer of, like, a huge pop group. Yeah. So far, Alex Chilton definitely has a better voice. <laughs> like, I really enjoy... And maybe it's just because he's singing the ballads so far, so, like, he kind of has more room to do a nice voice, but right. I enjoy his voice a little bit more so far, for sure. It, he's got a nice voice, for sure. Um, it's, like, I very will- smooth, but not too smooth like it has an edge to it I don't yeah know. It's, yeah it's and nice. i like that this song is f- fine i like it the lyrics are a little annoyingly like we're 13 years old and i i get it yeah. but it's definitely the least creepy song written about an under 18 year old from the 70s i would say mostly because the protagonist is explicit like the the girl and the person singing are explicitly supposed to be 13 at the same time instead of the him just singing about a 13 year old girl he's in love with without making that explicit right which is is a lot of 70s songs fall into yeah it's not like roller skating child comes to mind where you're like i can't tell whether brian's supposed to be a kid or not i don't know yeah or i guess mike i think sings that but whatever that's a good point yeah I mean, it's a good song, yeah, for sure. I I don't necessarily think that this is their most popular one, though. Maybe it's just, like I said, this album got really big again when I was in high school, and maybe this is just the one, you know, someone put on a mix CD or something for me. Yeah, could be. It's just the only one I knew also. Right. So. I would say Out in the Street, but not their version of this most popular. I guess that would make sense. It was the theme song to a, to a yeah. huge television show. Yeah. This song was uh, also featured in the uh, series finale of that 70s show. 
Wow. Yeah. When they're all like 25 years old. Yeah, I don't know why. Don't lie to uh, me. Yeah, don't lie to me. Another Chris Bell again. It's the rocker, so Chris Bell sings it. Right now they're doing a real early Lennon McCartney. Yeah. Where Lennon sings all the rockers and McCartney sings all the slow songs, so. Yeah, this rules. Um, yeah, this does absolutely nothing new, yeah. but slaps. Yeah, it's a good song. Yeah. Like it sounds exactly the same as every like boogie blues rocker and even his voice, we talked about it on that first Badfinger album, the kind of like, yeah, very high range screaming blues voice. Yeah. Like he's just doing that Paul McCartney thing. But Yeah. I was going to say fantastic. the one that Paul McCartney is the master of. Yeah. Well, and then yeah. also John Lennon did like for Twist and Shout, but like yeah. that very high range kind of yelly yeah. blues, white blues voice. But I would say that Paul McCartney's it's better. It's crushing. It. True. Yeah, John Lennon couldn't even make it through that recording session without needing tea and ruining his voice for a few days. So, what an idiot! Is better. Yeah. Yeah. Harry Nielsen couldn't even. He ruined his voice for the rest of his life trying to do this shit. Come on. Yeah. Paul obviously is the best. Yeah, and he's still out there today doing it. It's also very funny to me. This reminds me of that one. Um. I forgot his name. I almost said Al Wilson. I don't even know who that is. The guy from Can't Heat. <laughs> Alan Wilson? <laughs> oh, yeah, Alan Wilson. For some reason, I was, we just mentioned the Beach Boys, so I was thinking yeah. I meant Al Jardine, and I was like, where's Wilson coming? Yeah. Well, the other Brian Wilson's yeah. other, the dead brother, Alan yeah. Wilson. Um, so, Alan Wilson, this reminds me of that one that he had about, like, telling off his girl, but in his, like, very falsetto, nice guy blues voice. Yeah. It's just a weird, you know, this band does not seem like a band that's going to get mad at their girlfriend, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole don't me. It's like okay, but you're like a bunch of nice boys. So. Yeah, shut up, you idiots. Yeah. Um, but it's very enjoyable. It's now the India song. So the one this is Andy Hummel, the bass player, wrote and sung this. Ooh, this is why you shouldn't let bass players write and sing songs. <laughs> I really like this song actually, and I'm surprised this isn't a Chris Bell one because it really sounds to me like a person obsessed with the Beatles being like India. We have to do yeah. India. The Beatles did India, you know. Um, I also don't hate this song, but it is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous song. Yes, true. But I think it's fun. I really love the production. Like, the acoustic guitar and the bells and stuff are just really, I don't know. Everything is recorded very, very well for them just doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And maybe that's, you know, the, like, re-release of it, but it's good. There are very few songs with flute in them where I enjoy the flute. Um, Marshall oh, Tucker Band good. comes to mind. Whatever that song is. I got to keep on. That one. Um, yeah. Going up the country. Going up the country. No Jethro Tull. I do not yeah. mess with Jethro Tull with flute. Um, but this is good. This is good. I think it's fun. I don't know. It's like I get that it's ridiculous, but I I do think it's just a fun. Yeah. Well, and it's song. one of those it, ones where it's not so bad, like the Stones yeah. psychedelic flute fucking medieval yeah. music, where it's like ugh. It's like good enough to where I'm like yeah. it's catchy. It's like a good tune, but 
Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous. I can agree like it, that it's ridiculous. It's, yeah. yeah. It kind of it reminds me of like a Friends era song from the Beach Boys where it's just about something stupid and weird, but it's such a catchy, like fun song to listen to that you yeah. don't care. So, Well, yeah. yeah, you might think that about the Beach Boys. Yeah, but... exactly. You being me and also you secretly. Yeah. So, done with side one. Now we get to When My Baby's Beside Me. This is an Alex sung tune. I think this is the one up-tempo Alex lead lead vocal. Yeah, and it's... And it's I like it a lot. I like it, too. I think, I think it works... His voice works with it because it's not uh, Chris Bell singing it. So it's like... It mixes yeah. up a little bit. Because this could be, like, too similar to, like, Feel or uh, yeah. Don't Lie to Me. But then... That's what's nice about having at least two vocalists in, yeah. a, in a band. That's a really good point, because I was going to say I think this is my second favorite of the up-tempo ones after Feel, but I think you're really right that if Chris Bell sang this one as well, I'd be like, eh, it's too similar to Feel. So, yeah. But it's really good. It's got a nice, I don't know, I like the um, the riff a lot Yeah. on it. I like the clapping. And this, yeah, this kind of driving... Yeah. The part is really cool. And lots of clean guitar. Very interesting. Yeah. Like, I like it. It's just very interesting because, like, that's not. I don't know. Yeah, it's just an interesting choice for them to have made. Kind of. Yeah, a little tambourine. A little tambourine and some wah-wah pedal. Hell yeah. Some double track guitars? Fuck yeah. Yeah, this song is very good. It's pretty bomb, and it's it's nice on the second side that we get one up tempo song. Yeah, yeah, it slows down. With my life is right. So yeah, now we get into the classic album. You know, look, I complain when the slow songs are up top. I also complain when all the slow songs are at the end because just four get fucking rid of slow, the slow songs, songs in a row. Yeah. We really we do get an entire half of an album except for that song that is all ballads and it's a little yeah. rough. But so this is my life is right. This one technically wasn't a Bell Chilton. It's Bell and Tom Eubanks. I liked this one because it gets kind of mid tempo here. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's kind of like the ballad of El Gudo. Like they do the exact same thing where they go up tempo then mid tempo, and then we'll get to slow songs. I guess after this um i think this song is fine i don't know at this point in the album i'm starting to fall off a little bit that's fair it's like it's just like not quite catchy enough 
to keep me interested in and the instrumentation is all very good but like very how would i put it it's just very like good but without being super showy or like anything you haven't heard before kind of so yeah. there's not a lot catching you i guess I like this one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I do like them chance. doing like one acoustic and one electric guitar playing all the riffs together on that yeah. one. That's a cool sound for sure. See, and I think that's why I like that one. Like yeah. you said, it brings you down. This is the point where I kind of drop off a little True. bit of the album. Yeah, this is Alex again. See, it's weird though, because it's like, I like this melody, like kind of in a vacuum, but just for some reason or another... I start to just like lose it a bit for the album here in the second half. So yeah, well, and I really like this song. Like, I think you're right. Yeah. If not on the album, it's a great one. Um, but I guess within the context of the album, it's less good than, you know. Yeah. If it it's was... also just a bit of a weird choice because sometimes ballads like "13" is a ballad. Yeah. This song absolutely could have been recorded with the full band as like yeah. a slower song, but with drums and bass and a little bit of electric guitar happening. So it's a little odd to me that they just egg stuck with the acoustic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't think it needs that. And like for being a rock band, yeah. it's a little weird that they wouldn't have done even right. a, a full band slow song. Here it's either up tempo or just acoustic guitar kind yeah, of. Yeah, which so. is, it, it is weird that there's not a lot of I mean, kind of with uh, My Life is Right and uh, yeah. 13, they do it, but yeah, not. But those are like, it's, different, it's like so. slow verse and then the chorus is kind of rocking. But it's like, you can yeah. do a slow song with the full band. That works, absolutely. That's true. Uh, right. The backing vocals are great there. They're really good. The so, melody of the song is really pretty. Yeah. I think. But again, like just, yeah, throw a very simple, slow drum and bass line in, and I yeah. think I really like this song. It's just a little. Empty yeah. feeling almost. All right. Try again. This is Chris singing. And once again, we get, I think this one's just kind of acoustic guitar and singing. So a little, little bit of slide. So that's nice to break it up. And it's interesting to hear finally like Chris's voice in a slow song, so you kind of get a little bit of a better idea. I don't like the vocal take on this song. Yeah, it's, you know, their voices, him and Alex, like, during the ballads, I, I really prefer Alex's for a ballad, just because Chris's yeah. is just too smooth and kind of plain to me. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of, and it also a little bit sounds like he's just talking. Yeah. I think because his 
Natural Boys is probably a little sing-songy. Yeah, but this this song really does nothing for me, even with the slide guitar. I like the slide guitar. It, it's fine, but it's like, not again, the best it's like just, I've heard. And but it's kind of nice symbol. to have that in there. It'd be so easy to do a very slow, simple drum line and just a little bit of a bass line happening. Hey, you know, there's a tambourine. Shake that tambourine. Yeah, I think I think you're onto something with the bass. I think all of these ballads, like the back four, yeah. if you threw a bass line on there, it's going to change it. Yeah. Here, let's try yeah. it. <laughs> all right, PJ's getting out the, the jazz master. Sounds great. I don't know if the if his mic is picking it up, but it sounds amazing on my end. The regular John Paul Jones over there. Well, he's playing a keyboard now at the same time. Holy shit. I love it. I do want to say earlier I looked up Led Zeppelin on Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, and there are four members who the pictures were taken in roughly the same era, maybe 1976, okay. and that sure. is Robert Plant, uh, Jimmy Page, and John Bonham. Yeah. John Paul Jones is a picture from like the mid '80s, <laughs> but it's like they're all in it. squares, like it's yeah, uh, yeah. like the Let It Be cover kind of. And right. uh, I don't know why they made that choice on the Wikipedia. That's so article. weird, man. I love that. Watch the right, sunrise. So watch the sunrise. So this, by the way, was the song that Alex showed the members of Ice Water that got uh, him in the band. This is one of my least favorite songs on the album. <laughs> See, I wish they would have stuck with that first guitar part and not done the like weird riff yeah. and then slow. Yeah. But I really like that riff. Yeah, I think, like, again, if they had thrown some more instruments on the last two songs, I think this would work as just being an acoustic guitar song because it would yeah. be the only one. But, yeah, that uh, is like a nice that little riff. I like that riff, too. Yeah. It sounds like it's on a 12-string, too, man. It does. I think it is. But then the chords don't sound that 12-string to me, so I don't know. It's weird. See, what this? I like all of the instrumentation on this song. I don't like the vocal take or the like melody he's singing. Really, it's Alex's worst vocal. Yeah, yeah. Like, and his worst song, maybe. Just sounds kind of whiny on it. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, he doesn't have the, like, little bit of rasp and edge that he has on the earlier songs uh, to yeah. his voice. It's like he cleared his throat for this song and he shouldn't have. Yeah. And maybe this one would have been a good uh, Chris Bell vocal. Yeah, maybe. Like, a little rougher, you know? But I don't know. Um, I'm going to skip it. So, anyway. Now S- we get to ST100 slash 6. I don't know. Okay, I'm glad that... That's exactly what I would have said, so I'm glad. <laughs> okay, that. yeah. I don't even know how to start. But this is Bell and or Chris and Alex singing double tracked or singing together, I mean. Yeah. It's only like 40 seconds and it is my least favorite one, I think. <laughs> Not I mean that's kind of a It's all right. I mean, it, yeah. anything that's it's only 40 out. seconds long, I can't hate. <laughs> like Yeah. It's over so quick. Even if it kind of sucks, I guess who cares? Like it's and it's the fun. fact that it's like the end note on the album, you know. But yeah, yeah. I'll show you 
Like, they just didn't need to put that on, in my opinion. But Yeah. All right. That is number one record. So, the album, I think I said, released on the Ardent label and then distributed by Stax. Right. Um, unfortunately, Stax just had zero interest in this band. <laughs> <laughs> and also was apparently going through a real rough patch. I don't. I didn't know a lot about Stax in the early '70s, but they were really struggling as a label yeah. at this point, and so they just did an awful job of distributing this record. So Big Star tried to get a grassroots campaign going, uh, and it seemed to kind of succeed. But the album was just like not available at most record stores, especially outside of their area. Yeah. Um, if you lived in a different place in the country, Stax was just not getting the record out there. So during this time, Stax signed a dis- distribution deal with Columbia mm-hmm. uh, to try and help their distribution issues. But Columbia just ended up pulling this record and others from the stores because they had their own distribution network. So they like didn't want to have the albums out on a different in like different stores than their network of stores. Yeah. So do you, I anyway. mean, do you do you know why they were? Stax was like bankrupt at the time? I do not. Okay, so in 68, they broke up with Atlantic because they were, and so then they were independent for like four years, and then um, Booker T and the MGs and Steve Cropper, uh, they were like treating them like shit because they weren't paying them as much as when they were with Atlantic, and then they, uh, when the MGs left, they were like, oh shit, we don't have any like session guys. So then all of their session guys were like, not good i think um yeah. and then um they de- they declared bankruptcy at some point in the mid 70s but gotcha. i okay. think i think they booker t and the mgs had left by 72 i believe so they yeah. just didn't have any funding that makes a lot of sense so there we go so it ended up selling at the like the first release sold less than 10,000 copies mm-hmm. in the u.s uh, so this whole distribution failure was especially harsh and like and crushed the band when contrasted with the glowing reviews that they received. So like yeah. Rolling Stone, we'll get to in just a second, loved it. Billboard magazine loved it. Every review they got was a like, you have to go buy this record right now review. So let's read the Rolling Stone review. That's a little thing called like a Rolling Stone. Sing it, Jimmy. Uh, so, by a familiar name, we just heard his name a bunch talking about Badfinger, Bud Scopa. Scopa. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. So, he reviewed number one record in 19, February 1973, I want to say. Yeah, although confusing, because they also have the Radio City review in here, which is their next album, so I don't know. I don't know. Although, what, if it came out, no, April 72, it should have come out earlier <laughs> this year. Yeah. So, anyway. Let's see. In the late 60s, a Memphis teenager named Alex Chilton won moderate fame as the lead singer for a sometimes inspired, sometimes insipid unit known as the Box Tops. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's Chilton's rough. raspy, young punk voice was the focal point. So after several erratic albums and a couple of downright classic singles, Alex tired of being a mouthpiece. Uh, the final Box Tops LP Dimensions was fairly successful, uh, being more than just a singles band. Uh, but that was a last fling. The box tops were finished, and Alex Chilton uh, was on the move. So, let's see. What he got together was Big Star, and Big Star is really something. Which, by the way, so this is kind of, excuse me, like in the you know modern kind of re um, revival of Big Star. 
they have a much more there's much more of a view that like all the members were somewhat equal but at the mm -hmm. time since Alex was in this really big band for a long time he was like the lead guy and we'll get into that a little bit more later so like Chris Bell was very under kind of um, undersold in, in terms of his contributions to this first record because Alex Chilton was the famous guy and then Chris Bell isn't on the next couple of records so everyone was just like yeah Alex Chilton he's the guy so anyway so, the group is built around Chilton and fellow singer-songwriter Christopher Bell. Uh, so, number one record isn't revolutionary. The group works within the well-defined forms. It's just exceptionally good. Mm -hmm. The group seems to have used the California bands in the mid-60s, uh, primarily the Birds and Moby Grape, as models. But there's a brightness on the up-tempo tunes that seems Beatles-inspired. Parallels are Badfinger and Raspberries but Big Star yeah. shows more depth and consistency than either of those bands. Interesting. True. The first side is dominated by rock and roll, while the second becomes increasingly reflective and acoustic as it winds down. The guitar sound is sharp-edged and full, and even the prettiest tunes have tension and subtle energy, and the rockers reverberate with power. Uh, the songs move so smoothly that you have to be technique oriented to give the pieces conscious attention, which is kind of maybe what we were talking about where it's just a little like, it's very competent, but not flashy or anything. So, yeah. Uh, the slower songs are more noticeably influenced ballad of El Goodo, which he calls oddly titled. <laughs> True. Uh, seems like a bird song to bud the even more oddly titled ST 100 slash six, uh, sounds like Moby Grape to him. Interesting. I so, wouldn't yeah. have put those parallels together, but... Yeah. Uh, he agrees with us. Chilton's unaffected vocal style comes across best on the quiet tunes. Yeah. Uh, 13, Give Me Another Chance. Yeah. So the only unsuccessful track is the India song, and that was written by Andy Hummel. It just doesn't yeah. fit with the rest of the music. True. But 10 out of 11 is practically unheard of, even though I think there's 12 songs on it, but whatever. So number one record is one of the sleepers of 1972. You've done it, Alex. Your big star record even is better than the box tops super hits. So hmm. that's right. their glowing Rolling Stone review. Yeah. Like I said, he's the guy that they seem to give like, ah, I don't really give a shit about this album. Why don't you write about it, bud? Yeah, right. And bud's like, ah, I will. And yeah. it's always like he's sucking them off. Yeah, right. So let's see. Just real quick. This is just from the Wikipedia page. Billboard magazine said that every song could be a single and Cashbox Magazine said that everything falls together and should go to the top. So, anyway. Yeah. So, it got great reviews, but like I said, literally could not be found in most record stores and then was pulled from record stores. So, so they tried to do a tour, but were arrested pretty early on in Mississippi for marijuana possession, and that <laughs> ended their tour. And that's the only tour the band would do until, I think maybe in like the 90s they toured again, you know, with that okay. spell, but... Well, they didn't want That's to give the up only, their marijuana. So Yeah, the only tour they would do in the 70s. So Chris Bell, uh, so he was really just like crushed by the album not selling well. He was kind of banking everything on this album, breaking yeah. them. So in a fit, it, it, right after the album came out, in a fit of anger and depression, broke into the studio late at night and erased the master tapes of the album. Whoa. And then took a handful of pills to try and kill himself. Damn. It did not work. He's only 21, guys, at this point. So yeah. So. Six more years. Yeah. Keeping your did not pants. work, but he continues to be really, really depressed in this time. Uh, he starts fighting with Andy Hummel a bunch, 
Uh, at one point, they get into a, a crazy enough fight that Andy punches him in the face, and then Chris smashes his base. Uh, so later, for revenge, Andy notices that Chris's guitar is in his car, and like oh, gets into his car and punches a screwdriver into his acoustic guitar to break it yeah um so in november of 1972 uh about what six months after that album comes out chris quits the band so they go into the studio to seems start like a bad the second move. album yeah yeah so the band the rest of the guys go into the studio to start on their second album and chris comes back for a minute uh but is really unstable because he's taking a lot of drugs and pills at this point um at one point, some of the master tapes for the second album go missing. And unclear, I'm a little unclear why, whether they thought it was John Fry, and this is why Chris is mad at John Fry, or mm-hmm. whether Chris gets blamed. I, I couldn't find exact info here. Either way, Chris attacks John Fry's car in the parking lot, and then he quits again, and the band breaks up. Okay, okay. At the end, this is in like December 72. So... Chris Bell is now, he's gone from big star for forever. So we will just, uh, after him, they get back together the next year in 1973. Uh, and it's basically just the Alex Chilton band. And they release a second album uh, called Radio City, which is basically the exact same deal as the first one. It is critically lauded and is supposed to be incredible. Does not sell well, doesn't get marketed at all by Columbia. Just goes nowhere. So after that, yeah, after that, they record a third big star album, but is stuck in limbo with the recording company until 1978. So, Hmm. okay. uh, Which by the way, that album as well in 1978, critical darling upon release did not sell well. Right. (laughs) Okay. Anyway. So, but big star basically breaks up after the second album comes out and the third album is like shelved by the record company and not released. So, so, Chris decides to try and make it as a solo artist. Uh, the band thing did not work out. So he stays in Memphis for a while, records some solo stuff. He produces some other bands, including an American group that finally took that shitty John Lennon band name idea, the pre. Um, yeah. <laughs> Damn. So he produces pre's album, uh, but only releases one single with a B-side of original songs before he dies. Um, Although he records enough that in the 90s, there's a full posthumous album that's released. So like he recorded a lot, but it was just never, never picked up by anybody. So like at one point, his brother takes him to Europe and they take like a road trip around Europe trying to sell his demo tapes. Um, And they even, to his, you know, Beatles loving uh, self, they score a session at Air Studios, George Martin Studios, we talked about with Badfinger. And records with Jeff Emmerich, one of the Beatles engineers. Hmm. Um, but no one actually bites on like picking up his his records or giving yeah. him a contract or anything. So huh. when he gets back from Europe, uh, he ends up working at his dad's burger chain for a while. Bummer. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty pretty sad. I mean, we're like, it's it's several, we're still, you know, years before he dies, but... Um, we're kind of to that like post bad finger sadness where they're like working as taxi drivers and like carpenters and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. That's the, that's, you know, it's a rough life, man. You know, it's, 
as sad, obviously, as it is for like a world changing musician to die in the prime of their life. It's just, it's a very different kind of sadness, but equally as sad for like a guy who's trying so hard and is just so depressed and like can't get yeah. anywhere to die. And, you know, from Tom Evans of, of Badfinger to, to Chris Bell, it's like just equally depressing in a very different way. Yeah. Uh, so another musician, this is also from that Vice article I referenced earlier. Some other musician who had worked with Chris later in the 70s described his attitude through like the rest of the decade as just feeling very like vis- victimized and like, the world was, you know, uh, against him kind of thing. Like he just was very convinced that big star should have succeeded, that he was like a great songwriter and could write hits and all that. And was just like mad and angry and depressed that he couldn't ever catch a break. And this guy described him as cocky and impatient. So, Hmm. I mean, all things that seem like the personality traits of a famous musician. It's just, he didn't, he's got those. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, so also, so this is weird. So like I said, there were a lot of things about Big Star and Chris Bell because of their modern resurgence that was very helpful. There were also, we'll get to this later, like weird hints in some of the articles towards stuff that were mentioned in like one article and I couldn't corroborate anywhere else. And I'm not going to read a book or watch a documentary, okay? No. So <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't either. So supposedly Chris Bell also maybe was gay and also a lot of his depression and like drug use was like dealing with all of that growing up in like the sixties South, you know? And yeah. Um, he also in the later seventies turns toward Christianity and starts becoming like a religious person, which also supposedly maybe was him just kind of denying his own sexuality and all that. Not sure how legitimate that is, but it was just mentioned in a couple things I, I read. So Hmm, that's very interesting worth worth mentioning so in the later 70s this little indie label in i think in memphis picks up his single i am the cosmos uh and it is the b-side you and your sister and these are the last or the only songs outside of big star that are released by him in his life so let's hear i am the cosmos i think it's 1976 that these come out by the way Not as good as his big star stuff, but. Yeah, not great. It's all right. You know, this is like. Yeah, his most it's his only solo song really so it's his yeah. most famous solo song as well and it's supposed to be like a really influential kind of iconic song i agree it's kind of a shrug like i guess if yeah. you heard this like when you were starting a band in 1988 it would have been crazy to you but now it just sounds like any kind of i don't know there's just nothing super special about it to me yeah but. i agree you and your yeah. sister so and then yeah the b-side you and your sister This one's already better than the other one. This is definitely the most interesting his voice has sounded to me. Yeah. On a slow song. 
Because on I Am The Cosmos, he was kind of doing the thing I didn't like on I Feel or whatever, where he's kind of yeah. doing a bit of a whiny thing. Um, in the street. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this one's fine. I don't this mind one's this. Pr- cooler. You know, it's very yeah. different, but like if you're talking 70s singer-songwriter, it's pretty cool. I like the like triple-tracked vocals that all sound like his voice behind it. Like, that's kind of fun. Yeah. No? All right. Anyway, so the posthumous album with all his other stuff comes out like in 1992, I think, so... Okay, so here's where we get to another thing around his death that is a little... I can't I can't figure out what exactly is true or not, but... So this part's definitely true. In 1978, Big Star uh, secures like a contract with EMI, the Beatles distributor from all their early albums, right. to get their first two albums released in the UK. <laughs> uh, so they release like a double album, like a lot of those later Beach Boys records we talked about, a double album with you know each album on each disc. And it sells really well, is reviewed really well. It's like a huge deal that, you know, they finally get released in the UK. Chris is ecstatic for many reasons, both because Big Star is doing well and some people are hearing his music and it's selling well. And also he's just, as a Beatles fanatic, very excited that like his records be released on EMI. Yeah. So, so this is where I, like one interview I read with Jody Stevens claimed that they were going to try and get the band back together. No other article. I read many articles about his death. No other article even mentions this idea. So I have no idea. Okay. I don't know how legit this is, but Jody Stevens, the drummer, uh, claims that after this happened, they were going to get the band back together. This is also, I think before that third album still comes out. Um, yeah. So they're going to try and get the band back together. And so they planned a band meeting at ardent studios to talk it over. So according to Jody Stevens, he gets there late and was told Chris already left. Uh, So, quote, what's weird is I decided to drive back. And when I got to the Sears department store, I could see police cars with their lights flashing. And there was this car in the middle of the road. A pole had fallen and completely crushed the left side of the roof. I immediately thought I shouldn't look. The next day, John Fry phoned to say Chris had died in a car accident and I had passed right by him. Oh, wow. So, but then everything else I read just said like Chris Bell was at Arden Studios for recording session mm-hmm. with no mention of why or what it was about. So, huh. I don't I don't know. It makes it a little like sadder, but it also feels like the kind of thing you they would maybe make up years say later, 50 yeah. years later to make it sound sadder. I don't know. So, who knows. But so that was on December 27th, 1978. So Chris was at Arden Studios for whatever reason. He was driving home in his Triumph sports car back when Triumph made cars. Although they might still make cars. They're just hard to get in America. I don't know. Um, So he was driving his Triumph sports car. There were no drugs or alcohol found in his system. So he just lost control of the car or fell asleep or something. Um, Yeah. But lost his car, hit a power pole, and then the pole fell down and crushed him inside the car. Yikes. Uh, And to reflect how big of a musician he was at this point... The obituary in the newspaper said, son of local restaurateur dies. 
Man. Yeah, not even like local musician dies, which he yeah. was. He was famous. I would assume he was decently famous in Memphis, but I guess it had yeah. been like six years since he was, so uh-huh. no one cared what, anymore. Yeah. What chain of restaurants did Father own? I didn't uh, mention good question. It, it was, times, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see. Uh, Danvers hamburger chain. Oh, that's like a famous one. Is it? All right. I didn't know it. I assumed it was just some local thing. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought Danvers was a thing. Let's look it up. Danvers hamburgers. I mean, it is, but I don't know how big of a, they, they still exist. Danvers restaurants in Memphis, Tennessee. Do they exist in Nashville? Cause maybe I ate at one and that's what I'm thinking. Hmm. Yeah, There's German. T- I've eaten that one. Nice. That's what it is. Groovy. Huh. So there you go. Um. So that is Chris Bell's. We're back to. <laughs> thank God we're back to accidental deaths. Yeah. Oh, it was getting rough there for a while. <laughs> Suicide was too sad. Yeah. Uh. So that is the life and times of Chris Christopher Bell. Christopher Bell Rock. Um. Oh God, I should have been making that joke the whole time. Um, of big star. Yeah. So what do you? What do we think? Oh, we didn't even well, rate the album. We Holy didn't shit. rate the album. Let's yet. rate the album yeah. first. I was about to say, what do we? Yeah. Okay. God damn. What did you think of number one record out of ten, PJ? And your thoughts overall? It's a good album. Back half is a little slow. Um, yeah. but none of the songs were like uh, India song was my least favorite. No, 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 no. The last song was my least favorite. They didn't need that on yeah. there. Maybe an 8 out of 10. I thought it was a pretty good album. Yeah. I enjoyed listening. I also really enjoyed it. I, I got to say, like, not to be all contrarian here, but, like, I don't really get how it's that influential. I get that it is, yeah. but it doesn't sound that – it's just not that different than, like, a lot of power pop to me. And I guess I guess here's the deal. I think I get how it was influential to, like, an REM or replacements, like bands starting in, like, 1979, 1980. Yeah. Because they heard kind of this pop rock, power pop sound, but then contrasted with like slow indie ballads and stuff mm-hmm. where like, I guess I don't think the Raspberries or whatever were doing that as much or even like, I don't know, Kiss, who I think thought they were doing that, but it's just a different thing. So I can get that it like influenced that sound, but I don't really get to like a 2010 listener who's like, oh my God, how have I never heard this band before? It's like, yeah, they're they're good. They are very good, but it's not like anything that you haven't heard before by that point. Yeah. So, I don't know. I do I think mean, it's very good for sure. Yeah. I'd, see, and my rating was not knowing that it was like particularly influential at all. Huh. Um, I just thought it doesn't it have a, to be. I was it just was a solid yeah. listen, I think. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think I would give it I could give it a little lower. I think I, I might go like six. Six? Wow. Okay. I mean, if we're saying five is like just an average album. I like. it. I don't it. know. I, I got to say, I did like it, but I just like, maybe I just should give it, you know, ask me in two weeks. Like maybe I'll keep yeah. listening to it and I'll turn the corner on it. But okay. Uh, right now I'm going to say I think it's it's solid, but but not particularly special. Um. I'll ask you when we're talking about Nevermind. So, there we go, yeah. So Chris Bell, out of 27, we, we basically already predetermined this last week, I think, what his rating is going to be, but what do we think Chris Bell's 27-ness rating 
is. Oh, um, a one or a two. I yeah. I think well, I think we've got one twenty-seven already. I think we can go. We can go for a one. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, pretty, it's it, pretty it, minor. His life is sad, but then it was just like a car accident. If he had, you know, done the old Pete Ham, it would have been a little bit. He would have gotten higher, and I hate to say that, but it's true. Um, nobody knows about him. He made one album, basically. Um, yeah. He's no. He would never be in a mural. Yeah. Um, so I'm. I'm thinking he's. He's no, got to be the he's one. He's not even close. No. Yeah. It's. I think we were we were talking about it last week when we talked about Pigpen and and Pete Ham, where you were, I think, arguing that Pete Ham should be like a one or a two almost. And I was saying, no, no, no. A one or a two is for all those people who we aren't even going to talk about on the show. And I do yeah. think Chris Bell is in that list. But like yeah. I said, it's like just to me, Chris Bell seems vaguely more worth talking about than, yeah, the bass player for the Stooges. But but I don't objectively think he's like more important to yeah. music history or anything. And I so. get that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so kind of my thought I think on a, one is, a one is fair. Yeah. <laughs> Contrasted with old lizard himself the lizard king gets mr 20, johnny jimmy morrison crazy all so. right all right um that has been the story of chris bell and big star and for all those you know indie kids who went to high school with me who love big star and think they're one of the great bands of all time uh i point you to badfinger um i think this band Based on the one album I listened to, better than Badfinger. Yeah, it's an insane thing to say, but okay. <laughs> I, I can't argue with opinion. We'll beat PJL. Oh. oh. I'll see you at the crossroads, my friend. And I'll see you on the other side of that stuff. Beach Boys Boys Production. Here's a question I have for you. I think I mentioned something about LL Cool J a few weeks ago. Or we were... Oh, ladies love him. Yeah, ladies love Cool James. Um, But we... Oh, we were talking about Unplugged, and you... (laughs) It came up that he had done one. Yeah. I only know LL Cool J as, like, a guy who's around. Like... Right, I, he's I don't just like know. generic famous person now. Was he a big deal? Like, is he considered a yeah. good rapper? I know yeah. he was a big deal. I shouldn't say that, but like, you know, is he up there with like the likes of like Run DMC and like Tupac or? Uh, I think of him as being up there. Yeah, like in his time, once he transitioned to a rap or to an actor, I think he basically lost all of that. Like now, yeah. Even even when he was younger and was an actor, I feel like he pretty immediately just transitioned to being generic actor, famous guy. But when he was just a rapper, I do think of him as being like a legitimately important rapper. Yeah. Okay. See, um, and I've only known him like going. As... Do you know "Going Back to Cali"? That's a great song. Uh, "Rock the Bells" is really famous. I know him honestly. This is again just kind of skewed for, from my experience. 
he has a Sirius XM channel called Rock the Bells that's a lot yeah. of like 90s, early 2000s hip hop and R&B mm-hmm. that's fantastic. And so like, oh, you know what? I've heard this song. Yeah. So like, I think in his time, he for sure was very important and famous, but then like, kind of like Ice Cube, or wait, am I thinking of Ice-T and Ice Cube? Both of them. Both of them, yeah. I think like once you transition, or for those guys, once you transition to rapper, then you just like immediately lose the like credibility of being a rapper. Not so much right. anymore, but in, from that era. Well, yeah, I remember that being a big they deal. They became a lot less cool. Well, I, I remember Ice Cube being a rapper and then it was like, he's in Are We There Yet? Like, what's going on with yeah. Ice Cube? But also Ice Cube was in like... You know, he was in uh, NWA, which is a band that is, like, I know for a fact is respected, you know? But, like, LL Cool yeah, J... Yeah, he was, he was pretty hardcore, generally. Yeah, but LL Cool J, I just is. did not know. Yeah. And, like, he's, like, on fucking Lip Sync Battle or one of those dumb shows now, where it's, yeah. like, what... Was he respected at one point, you know? And I guess... I, I think yes. he definitely... I mean, I guess I don't know, like, maybe other rappers thought he was lame or something, but... Just in terms of what I know of, like, 90s hip-hop, yeah, I think of him as being a like, important rapper. Okay, good note. Um Ice-T is a crazy... Both Ice-T and Ice Cube are kind of crazy because, like, Ice Cube was pretty legit, although I think there's controversy about whether NWA were, like, real gangsters or it was all just an act. But I saw that movie. Yeah, but regardless, like, he was somewhat legit. Yeah. And then Ice-T is crazy because I... I don't listen to a lot, or I've never really heard any of his songs aside from like a couple of very famous ones. But he was a he like invented heavy metal rap, which yeah. is wild in the early night. Yeah. yeah, I always find that a, a fun kind of fact about rap um, history and just something that again, yeah. him as an actor, you're not like this guy was like yeah invented a very hardcore type of music. No, yeah, you don't. You're like oh, that's Tutuola from SVU. Yeah. Um, when you put Ice Cube into Wikipedia, it immediately takes you to an article that says, this article is about cubed ice. For the American <laughs> rapper, see Ice Cube. <laughs> and that just makes me really wish his name was Cubed Ice. <laughs> that would <laughs> Or that be really there would have been like a knockoff rapper, like whatever other label would try and be like, this is Cubed Ice, though. He's almost as good. Yeah. Moms will like accidentally buy this album instead. Yeah, that was Row of Death <laughs> Records. <laughs> <laughs> death isle records <laughs> so anywho i honestly i will say like i wish there was a really a, i mean i don't wish that a famous rapper had died at 27 yeah but i wish because as we've talked about many times this is giving us a great opportunity to like cover a lot of different artists and genres and everything and styles of music and it's pretty sad it is sad to me that we miss both like 80s pop and stuff like i kind of wish there was a good 80s artist in there and that we'd like there's really no famous yeah great rapper or well because who's that like soul artist who's the one that died who was 26 mac miller yeah mac miller that would have been like a perfectly a very cool one to have done but again 26 so anywho 